1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 30th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio
2: Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show. Now including the queer and intersex community in our mission statement, and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and I'm Chloe Corcoran. Tonight
1: we hear from artist and social instigator Anne Vray, who took over Hollywood Boulevard on a Friday night to make people decide between love and or hate. And we revive a very special gaetino report from Dan Guerrero. But first, let's spill some tea: The honest tea. The first story that I want to jump into, because you may have heard a little uh, story about Ed Buck. Now this story is pretty big. It's huge. Tell me what's going on. Lay it out there for me. Well, the feds have charged Ed Buck. He is a former Democratic fundraiser for the LGBTQI community, and he's 65 and he lives here in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. Yeah, he's been real busy. Two young black men over the last 2 years have died in his apartment and one was nearly fatally overdosed and um well he has allegedly been luring these these men back to his apartment and uh, you know he's had this uh, really kind of sick fetish you might call it of allegedly shooting them up with meth in exchange for sex
2: and money He's allegedly shooting them up. So he's taking away their consent. He's taking away their choice. And he's allegedly shooting them up himself. Exactly.
1: So he's in control. So I don't know if this is a submissive kind of thing or whatever is going on. But the long and short of it is that and it's not just that. Now, an additional nine victims nine. have spoken to the FBI. This is habitual. Or he, he's he got something. Uh, yeah, this, this, this man, well, to say he's ill would be the minor statement of the day. But. The thing is, is that here is a member of our community, somebody who's been actively involved in politics and supporting politics.
2: Just what we need, right? Right. We need this guy. We need the Ted Bundy of political, you know. And he has a background. He was originally a Republican, and he helped the recall of a governor in Arizona over racism and some other things. And the governor was eventually recalled. And now we're in this space where he's become a Democrat. He's become very active. He's donated over six figures to democratic causes. And in the background, he's doing these things and taking advantage of people. And the thing is, this is over two years ago that this first person died in his apartment. You know, it's just the perfect storm for some
1: of the media to take a story like this, blow it up and put it in our face and turn it on. us, like Fox has. Yes. You know, they want to make it sound like he's uh, – they were getting on the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times was slammed as disgusting for dis- downplaying Ed Buck as a small-time Democratic donor. And I said, you know, he's donated hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to presidential candidates and whatnot. And But in relation to uh, something like the Koch brothers, okay? Right. Or, or – um, well, Sheldon Adelson and people mm-hmm. like that who've donated millions and millions and millions. Yeah, if you want to parse words, fine. But I think they want to, uh, certain networks have certain angles that are conservative, let's say, and they would love to take somebody who is identifying as a member of our LGBTQI plus community also, and then you throw in politics, ooh, it's just the perfect right. storm, right? And so to take this person who is the penultimate of like the extreme mm-hmm. end of the spectrum and use that sort of as a standard bearer and say,
2: like, so I told you those LGBTQI plus people are just, they're not right. Right. You know? And we run the risk of bearing the lead here. We've lost. Two members of our community. Thank you. And two members of our community who are very vulnerable, partly due to the color of their skin. Oh, yeah. Especially um, (laughs) the current climate that we're in. these, These political times that we're facing. Yeah, of course. And of we, dis- we disguise things by talking about, it's, it's so cliche to talk about the current climate. And let's name what that climate is. Yeah. That climate is a climate of fear. It's a climate of discrimination. And it's a climate of people are wondering what's going to happen next. And that's difficult. And to see our own community hurting each other like this just really gets me. It really hurts. So speaking of that, let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Let's talk about our friend, Sam Smith. Sam Smith? What are you going to tell us about Sam today? Well, Sam has let us know that they prefer and use they-them pronouns. Oh,
1: and uh, how did this come about? Are there some other uh, big uh, scoop news that we want to uh, let our listeners know that's going on with uh, they-them?
2: Absolutely. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary has added the they pronoun to the dictionary, and it can also be used in the singular form. It's been giving, uh An additional definition for
1: uh, the binary community, for for those who don't identify as
2: uh, as male or female. Right. And to put it out there a little bit for our listeners Mm -hmm. with my understanding of it, I'm a binary trans woman. So I fall on the binary of the woman side of things. And Michael, you are? Uh, I'm a gay male. So you are on the male side of the spectrum, but it is a spectrum. As we know, gender is a spectrum, so there's all types of identities in between, and non-binary is one of them. And non-binary people prefer they-them pronouns, in some cases not all, and that should be respected. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting to see the evolution of language
1: and the evolution of certain words, because uh, what they, them, has been, it's been in use in existence in the dictionary since the 1300s. I remember when, when it was first added. I Back remember. when we were young. When we were younger in the 1300s, yes. having our, our, little, our little dummy tosses of honesty. Emily Brewster is a senior editor for Merriam Webster. <laughs> yeah, what's in that tea? Emily Brewster is a senior editor for Merriam-Webster, and she noted that, you know, we are always aiming to reflect usage. But it's very clear that this is fully established in the language at this point. So I love knowing that not only is it being used, it's it's, it's when it becomes part of the zeitgeist, part of the culture, part of just how we speak, you know, it's not just something we're throwing in there to encourage people to use it this way. By the time they make the decision to put a word in or expand
2: a word's definition, that means it's already in the culture. Right. They didn't just come up with this to make some sort of statement. They're saying people are using they, them pronouns, and we're just following society's lead because that's what's going on. At the same time, she says the words exist. You don't actually need a dictionary to legitimize the words. I just want to reemphasize that. Yeah. But, of course, if it can serve that function, I'm happy for it to do so. So it's kind of a give and take. It's already happening, but some people need to see it in print to feel that they can respect somebody's identity for some reason. I don't understand it. I'll never understand not respecting somebody's identity. But I'm glad that the language is catching up to who we are. Well, you know, the dictionary is like, if you will, uh,
1: the Bible— of our language, right? I'll go with that. So, you know, if, if, you, don't look, if you don't believe it, look it up, you know. <laughs> so I don't know why I have to do that little Southern voice. but I have a lot of family in the South, so I'm not knocking on, the, on my Southerners at all. Um, yeah, so there is a legitimacy. Seeing it in print, there's something about that. You know, I'll never forget when I did uh, Del Shores to play Southern Baptist sissies, and I'd always wanted to have my name in a in a script and as the original cast. And I went to Samuel French bookstore and bought that copy after it had been published. And seeing your name there, seeing it's it like there was the legitimacy that I did that. Yeah, you know. So if, if you're binary, if you're non-binary, you know, and you're using they them uh, pronoun to identify as your pronoun, it's part of your identity. It's important. So language matters, you know, and and having our dictionary, our the you know, our King James version of our dictionary, our Merriam Webster, having that reflect who we are, going in there and looking up and finding
2: my pronoun in there. That means something. It really does. Think about all the youth out there who are being validated by this. And that's what it comes down to. It's validation. Having your identity validated. And I will bang on the table all day for people to have their identities validated just because you may not like someone. You don't like their music. You just don't like this person. That does not mean you don't use their proper pronouns. This yeah and just to
1: follow up on that you know exactly how i feel so i labels are a double edged sword for me i don't like if somebody is trying to label me mm-hmm. right but how cuz i have no choice in the matter in that in that instance but how i label myself is very important to me how cuz that's part of how i shape my identity how i present myself to the world how i want to be presented how i want to be seen and responded to You know, it's like uh, earlier uh, when we started doing our our broadcast today. I did not pronounce your last name correctly. And you were good to stop and say, no, let's do that again because you said my name incorrectly. And then you corrected me and did it and did it right because our names are important to us. They are very important to us. So pronunciations, because I'm a stickler on that one, really. If I hear one more person say Kamala. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, Kamala. Uh, Kamala, Kamala. See, I can't not say it wrong because I
2: know it's, you know it's Kamala Harris, not Kamala. Well, we do want to say to our non-binary friends, we see you and we love you. And speaking of things we love, I love Trans Pride in London. And you are the best transitioner. Well, thank you.
1: I have a lot of practice. <laughs> she was pouring me another cup of tea. As she was transitioning to the next story. So tell us about uh, the trans pride in London. Is this
2: a new thing? So this is a new thing. And it was born out of a need to be seen and respected and heard. So there was an incident at London Pride in general where some trans exclusionary radical feminists decided to try to make a statement to push trans people out of the LGBTQI community, really. And trans people in London have said and all over the UK are saying that's not true. And a lot of people within the LGBTQI community are standing up for trans people as well, and trying to drown out these voices, which is important because trans people need to be included. So, two Saturdays ago, a lot of trans people, my friends, my family, <laughs> gathered in London to celebrate who they are. That is amazing, you know,
1: and it's—I love it. And there's part of me that just kind of goes, "Why did it have to come to this?" Absolutely. Why, in all the years that we've been doing our gay pride parade, mm-hmm. you know, it should, you know, and maybe we should expand that, too, and call it the LGBTQI plus parade.
2: Absolutely. You know,
1: and not just call it gay pride. It should, it should we should, that's not inclusive to me anymore.
2: <laughs> You know? Absolutely. And the the visibility is what's really important here. In the UK, I've read a report that hate crimes against trans people have gone up over 80 percent over the course of the past year. There is a large media presence that is very anti-trans in the UK, as there is in many places. So being out there and saying, you know what? This is me. This is who I am. We're just normal people. We're out here living our lives. We're going to have a good time. And doing that in a safe place that you don't often have is really, really important. That safety is huge. And there is safety in gathering together and safety in numbers. Yeah.
1: Well, as you know, being a transgender woman, that, you know, transgender women have are, are, I think it's like 41% have attempted suicide. but. Black women, black transgendered women are four times, four times more likely to be either a victim or take their own lives.
3: Absolutely.
1: So, yeah, you know, and, and I've known about, you know, uh, the statistics in our, in our trans community for so long. And I, I and I've felt that. You know, And they dealt with that in Pose as well. I've seen mm-hmm. that on – and a couple of the gals go to uh, a gay bar just to sit and talk about what are we going to do? What are we going to do about our house and how are we going to deal with certain things that were going and infighting that were going on between the houses? And they were asked to leave by the owner of the bar because they don't fit the clientele. You know, it hurt the image. He didn't want it to affect their business. I'm thinking, how, how can we ever do that to ourselves? How could we not brought in so expanding all these labels some of the stories that we've been talking about already, you know, seeing these pronouns getting legitimized, seeing our uh, not just gay pride, but see those letters expand so that the identity within our community gets more focused
2: and more inclusive. Inclusivity is key. And I'll share a little bit. I've been refused service before, even here in California. And it's devastating. And a lot of the people here talk about in the articles that we've been reading the stares, the laughter, the potential for violence, and you reference the struggles of black trans women especially. Yeah. There is an epidemic of murders against black trans women, and these are horrific, horrific murders and something we need to take care of our commu- in our community and keep each other safe, look out for each other, and don't other people within our own community. It's important for us all to be inclusive. It's important that we all live and lead authentic lives. Right. And to stop somebody else from living their authentic life because you think, I don't know what you think, to be honest. I don't know what the thought process is there by somebody existing does not infringe upon your life, your identity, what you're doing or who you are. That's right. So not—it shouldn't be a problem. Mm-mm. And I'm doing this today
1: for you, my cousin, Emily
2: Nicole Taylor.
1: Love you very much. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that you're living your authentic life. So I'm glad to be here and be a part of this conversation today with Chloe, who deals with it every day, you know, uh, and to, to the fact that you've been, research-
2: where were you refused service? I want you to take me there right now. I, it would <laughs> <laughs> we're going to buy them some honest tea. We will give them some honest tea. They won't give us tea, but I'll give them some.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, we've talked our way up to uh, the end of the show, I think. We have. That went quickly. Isn't it? I thought that tea is so good. I put just enough sugar in it and left it out in the sun. It's sun tea. It's not honest tea.
2: That sounds like it's from the South, and I am here for it. <laughs> we'll have more for you very soon. Well, thank you very much, Michael Taylor Gray. Thank you, Chloe. Corcoran. <laughs> have a great night.
4: <laughs> you too. And that's the honest tea. Mark Siegel and his famous TV Zaps, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1972, Mark Siegel was 19 and living in Philadelphia. He and a male friend were thrown out of a television dance program for dancing together. So, a few days later, Mark barged in on the station's news broadcast and yelled, We have some grievances! Cutting to a commercial, they wrestled Siegel to the floor. Siegel became known for these so-called TV zaps. Every time he was arrested and carted off... On The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Siegel leaped from the audience and lambasted the program for its negative treatment of gays. Siegel's most notorious app, however, was on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Alan Levenberg.
5: Hello, I'm Matthew Camp, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. My mama told me when I
0: was young We're all born superstars She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said cause he made you perfect baby So hold your head up girl and you'll go far listen to me when i say i'm beautiful in my way cause god makes no mistake. i'm on the right track baby i was born this way don't hide yourself in regret just love yourself and you set i'm on the right track baby i was born this way oh mm, yeah I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way.
1: Free Waves is a social art and activist organization focusing on expanding people's perceptions of gender. Principal director Anne Bray coordinated their second and large-scale event, Love and or Fear, to bring art and
2: culture to the masses and then asks them to experience love and or fear. Vashbodi sits down with Ann Bray to talk about Free Waves and the event. This is Vosh
5: Bodhi, and I am joined in studio with Anne Bray, who is an artist, but she is also the director of Free Waves, a 30-year-old public arts organization, which is a visual arts and social instigator. So, I've described you, Anne. Will you please say hi and introduce yourself?
6: Hello. Yes, I'm Anne Bray, and I am the director of Free Waves. I'm an artist. I've taught all over the city as well. And Free Waves is a 30-year-old media arts organization trying to put arts out in public space. Sort of have dialogue with people from all different perspectives and put something in a certain location where... Where that dialogue could be really activated because of who's already coming there and what's already present. We started uh, showing videos on all the LA bus system which has TVs behind the driver in the middle of the bus. And we took artist videos from all over the city and thematically coordinated them about neighborhoods, public health, and gender issues was our final series. And after each video, we asked a question. And so people were texting us answers to our interpretive questions about the art videos. And the variety of answers from Los Angeles writers was enormous. And like to even understand what everyone was saying was a phenomenon. (laughs) And I really saw this thing of public engagement as technologically a possibility. But all of a sudden, one day, the TV system on the buses went off the air. So we had a brand new group of 25 feminist PSAs that I wanted to show. And Hillary Clinton was coming down the pike as what I thought was an inevitable next president. And I was riding the buses in Hollywood and seeing all these women in bikinis being advertised to sell Coca-Cola and thinking, how can Hillary win if this is the image of women being presented? Like, why take her seriously if she's just for sex or children? The conflict between the two images became the reason to start dismiss which has been going on since 2016. What
5: was Dismiss?
6: A big series. Just the word dis, dot, 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 miss, is my experience of just being a woman, not taken very seriously, have to fit in a box, do what they want. So Free Waves has been showing... Almost half women artists over the years, and really connecting with the gay community, and seeing the intersections between feminism and gay issues, and finding lots of commonalities through the emphasis on body, meaning of the body, of common interests, and. We would do exhibitions where we'd really put one gay video next to one feminist video next to the next gay video. And the dialogue back and forth between the two of them, to me, was really satisfying.
5: Now, intersectionality is key.
6: That's why we use the intersections of the street and the crosswalks were part of the plan for the event. Literally, here's an intersection. What happens at this cross point?
5: (laughs) Which brings us to your latest event, which was Love and or Fear. First of all, why that name?
6: I just had Love or Fear, and thinking that fear is the opposite. It isn't hate. It is way more subliminal than that. And I've been working with Peace Over Violence, the Nonprofit sexual assault prevention and recovery organization. And they really had a reaction to the Love or Fear title, which is that fear has a very positive purpose. In an individual that is facing a potentially dangerous situation, and if some people in that situation don't listen to their fear, and then they get into more danger, so that fear is a—they saw it as a positive, potentially. So I changed the title to Love and or Fear, thinking that it made it even more of a choice, Where are you going right now as you see this particular artist or artwork? Are you going to respond with love and or fear?
5: It was a wonderful invitation as a viewer because it was very, very participatory. Mm -hmm. For those who were not there, let's describe it to them.
6: So on September 7th, Saturday night on Hollywood Boulevard, Free Waves took over two blocks both sides of the street and had about 30 artists performing, showing on the metal gates, set up in installations on both sides of the street and went on from like 8 till 11. We had lesbian karaoke, we had a lesbian bar. We had Reach L.A. voguing up and down the street. <laughs> we had an army of peace activists in white outfits with whistles that would all get into formation and march down the street and then scatter to the winds and then whistle and reform. We had the beautiful finale of Snatch Power. They are a group of singers that performed on the sides Street that sort of blew the finale away. We had surveillance resistant uh, masks by Rihanna Strada and friends so that you could not tell who they were, even though there are 13 different surveillance cameras on Hollywood Boulevard for the police. Um, We had the beautiful finale of Snatch Power. They're a group of singers that performed on the side street that sort of blew the finale away.
5: It was truly remarkable. And throughout the course of the evening, there were constantly new Uh exhibitions that were showing up or coming to completion during the course of the afternoon. People started setting up on the trees because the trees were decorated, Mm -hmm. which I loved With With
6: yarn bombing. Is that what you called it? That's what they call it. It's sort of a network of people that uh, use the Internet to intersect. David Orozco did the coordinating. And he did one of the Yarn Bombs. And we told everyone the theme a couple of months ago. They volunteered and saw the venue and saw Love Earth and or Fear as the title and then took off in their own directions. But it did give sort of a soft cover on some hard surfaces.
5: And it was extremely welcoming. There were crocheted and macramé hearts. There were messages that said, you are loved, and Mm. asked certain questions. I want to read one of the things that was on one of the trees. There were a series of questions that were answered by a 16-year-old girl. The first question was, why is safe love important? And her response was, because it helps give freedom, and everyone deserves freedom. I thought Ooh,
6: that was yeah right? for sixteen well, for where a sixteen-year-old right <laughs> where we're
5: going. Why should we celebrate people that are different from us? Her response was because they have a right in this world too. Mm-hmm. And then the last question was, "What can we do to promote gender inclusivity?" And she said, "Have more events like this."
6: Ooh, we're inviting her back. <laughs>
5: <laughs> this is Vash Bodhi speaking with Anne Bray, director of Free Waves. Your mm-hmm. event was so amazing. Mm-hmm. What was your goal when you set out?
6: So a year ago I did another event at the LA State Historic Park and our goal at that was inclusivity and what and just really seeing what would happen if all uh, this wide range of artists were together, you know, could they become friends? Could they work together? Could they collaborate? What kind of audience would they draw? and what would happen among the different audience members. So a year ago, we got to test that idea out, and it was so beautiful. A very positive vibe and very heart-opening. And then I upped the challenge. You know, could we do the same thing, but right in the middle of the city, in the middle of a very gendered street? So my office is up on Hollywood Boulevard. I know the street very well. And I see it as a mix of sort of Disney cartoon stereotypes of men and women and the porno (laughs) industry supplies. And both are there. And I think of them as the two sides of the street and that all of us are walking down between the two all the time, mentally, emotionally, and what do artists want to do between those two?
5: Anchoring your event was the Hustler store. <laughs> so when you talk about like the points. And supplies. they were
6: the most friendly to us and helpful of all the stores. Hustler.
5: Well, I mean, Hustler has always been in the forefront of free speech self-expression, using the body. So personally, I'm not surprised that, that they wow. were so incredibly helpful. They're very helpful. And then on the other side of the street is really where you have a lot of the bars and restaurants. That's sort of where people go to hang out on a Friday or Saturday night. So the group that you had there was people who were participating in mm-hmm. your event and also people who were just completely in it, but didn't know what they were in. And it was so interesting to watch.
6: I've watched the documentation and seen a lot of fun intersections. Who's watching who? Some artists that were just visiting were saying, is that person performing or not? You know, like you could almost say everybody was performing once they were on that platform. I mean You're, it truly You were on.
5: Seriously, you were being <laughs> no seen. No matter who you were. <laughs> or how you were reacting or whether you were part of the show or not, you were part of the show. It was really, really quite, quite spectacular. I applaud you for saying let's just get out in the middle of everything and have this conversation in a way that We have to have this conversation.
6: So in the park, we had mostly people that came specifically for the event. And in Hollywood, maybe it was half and half, like public and intentional audience. So yeah, maybe the first conversation was among us, quote unquote. Yes. And then the second was among everyone.
5: This is Vash Bode speaking with Anne Bray, director of Free Waves. You did an event called Ain't I a Woman?,
6: and we spelled it W-O-M-X-N. We had just done all these postcards of artists' images, 10 of which I had selected, printed as postcards. And the public was asked to choose you know, any image they wanted. And I would give them this totally beautiful, velvety-feeling postcard if they would give me their answer to the question on the back like, how does gender perform you? And they didn't know what the question was until they flipped it. But they had to choose via the image on the other side. And... We had gathered like 1,200 answers to these questions, and I had passed them on to um, social scientists trying to think about how are people answering, learning more and more what younger people are feeling about gender. And seeing even over the few years that we've been doing this, that the changes, that the idea of Not caring about someone's gender is a growing possibility among some people. (laughs) And on the same time, my appreciating of women. So that's the dilemma in my head that I keep trying to negotiate, staying my support of women and then letting other people just express their gender any which way
5: love and or fear was truly remarkable and I want to thank you so much for coming out mm-hmm. and talking to us tonight and mm-hmm. I hope if there's another opportunity to bring you back you would be more than happy to come out and talk to us.
6: And next program uh, maybe like a year from now we're going to try to do one on masculinities and we have a S at the end of that masculinity.
5: I think the world needs that because masculinity doesn't have a really good definition that people can wrap their fingers around. How do people find out more information about you and Free
6: Waves? Our website will have a lot of the images from the Love and or Fear event. And that's at F R E E W A V E S org. And pretty soon, we'll have a video there as well to show what happened?
5: Fantastic. Thank you for stopping by. This has been Vosh Bodhi, talking with Ann Bray, director of Free Waves.
4: Don't go away. We'll be right back with the Gay Tino Report. Walter Cronkite gets zapped, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1973, a young man named Mark Siegel ran in front of a camera during Walter Cronkite's evening news broadcast, holding a sign that read, Gays Protest CBS Prejudice he was fired up about the lack of gay news. Although Siegel was fined $450, he did meet Walter Cronkite to discuss his grievances. Cronkite arranged a meeting at CBS, and five months later his newscast featured a segment on gay rights. Cronkite had become a behind-the-scenes ally and a bridge between the gay movement and major media. In 1975, Siegel started his own newspaper, the Philadelphia Gay News. Now and then, Cronkite would ask his new friend how the paper was doing and offer friendly advice. And that's the way it was. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Alan Levenberg.
7: Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to I M R U Radio Magazine. Out loud and
0: proud since 1974. Mama told me when I was young That we're all born superstars She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect babe So hold your head up girl and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't hurt yourself and regret Just love yourself and you're sad I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this
1: way Dan Guerrero is an award-winning producer of diverse programming for network and cable television and of live arts and culture concert events. He's helmed talk shows and music specials for NBC, PBS,
2: HBO, Univision, and Telemundo. And he's directed large-scale concert events at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, the National Hispanic Cultural Center in Albuquerque, the City de la Musique in Paris, France, and the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., among other prestigious venues and he is a beloved contributor to
1: IMRU. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone who self-identifies in between, we present the Gaetino Report.
8: Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. My intro for today's guest sounds like I'm sitting here with Superman, and that's not quite as far-fetched as one might think. John Duran, or I should say Mayor John Duran, is a longtime defender of human rights, a big supporter of the arts, leads one of Southern California's most prominent law firms, and is serving his fourth term as the mayor of West Hollywood. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Thank you for squeezing in the Gatino Report. Absolutely. Good to be here. I'm a big fan of West Hollywood. I've lived there far longer than I lived in East L.A. where I grew up. So I've seen it change and grow over the years, and it wasn't even a city when I first got there, but you're in your fourth term as mayor, so you've not only seen these changes, you've been a part of it all.
3: Actually, my fifth term. Fifth? Uh, fifth term. Yeah, I've, wow. I've been on the council now for 18 years. At the end of this term, it'll be 20 years on the city council. Yeah. Okay. It's been incredible. It's been great to be part of watching a community evolve and change, and you know, when the city first got started in 1984, that was about the same time the AIDS epidemic started. So everybody predicted the city would fail. It didn't have the tax base to support all the human services that were going to be necessary to handle an epidemic. Obviously, a first gay-majority city in the United States. There were a whole lot of naysayers that said, this thing is not going to work. The county's going to have to take it back over. And today, we are one of only 4% of cities in the entire United States that have a huge surplus in the bank because we've done so well.
8: Well, you guys are smart. And I'm serious. Our city government takes care of all its residents. It's not just the LGBT boys or girls. And I think many people think that's all WeHo is. But it's a very diverse community, lots of seniors. And you really all take care of all of our residents.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. The senior on the council is actually John Heilman. He's been there since the first day the city was formed in 1984. I'm the second oldest guy at 20 years. But we've watched the city evolve over time. Uh, Currently today, still 40% of the residents identify as LGBT. And our Russian-speaking community has actually declined tremendously. There was a time when they were a third of the population. Now they're down to only 9%. The largest demographic moving into West Hollywood right now are single- working white collar women. And they're continuing to now reshape the city of West Hollywood and its future and where we're going. It's a really hard place to move into because the cost of housing is so high. Yeah. And if you're in a rent control department, you've got gold. You can be there for the rest of your lifetime, hopefully, and, and enjoy that. But the cost of new housing, a lot of the people who are moving in really have to have really great paying jobs. And primarily it's women, young women executives who like being around gay men because they're not going to feel sexually harassed or in any way you know, mistreated. Uh, they like being in the center of the city. They can get to Hollywood, to Century City, to downtown. West Hollywood is very centrally located. And they like the values of the city, that the city does, in fact, take care of its residents, you know, a tune of about $5 million a year that we give to social service organizations to provide for our small town of 35,000 people.
8: It's a small but mighty town because geographically, we're tiny.
3: Yeah, 1.9 square miles. La Brea Doheny, not even two, 1.9 square miles. And yet- extremely dense, 35,000 people within that small geographic area. That's about 18 to 20,000 people a mile. That's highly, highly dense. But that's the beauty of living in West Hollywood. You can park your car and anywhere you want to go is within walking distance. So I think that's what a lot of people like. If you're a New Yorker or somebody from a big urban area, West Hollywood feels very comfortable and very much at home.
8: It is a neighborhood. I do my daily walk up to Gelson's and I stop and I thought that people walk their dogs and we have that little park there and it is a neighborhood. You've described it somewhere. I read, as our city having a history of being the epicenter to a resistance in issues like LGBT rights, racial discrimination, gun control, long before the current administration. Yeah,
3: that's very true. For a 100 years. So West Hollywood has been around for about a 100 years. When that Hollywood land sign went up on those hills, they started to call the area just west of that West Hollywood. And there were four attempts to annex it into the city of Los Angeles. And each time, the people who lived in West Hollywood said, we don't want to be part of Los Angeles. We got our own thing going. And part of it was the history of the relations between the LAPD and the people in Los Angeles. And the people in West Hollywood didn't want to be touched. You know, During the 30s and the 40s, it was Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel and the casinos and the gambling joints and the speakeasies. They didn't want the LAPD over them. And during the 50s, it was a lot of people that were being blacklisted by Joe McCarthy on the Hollywood blacklist, avowed communists and socialists who would live in West Hollywood. They didn't want to be bothered by the LAPD. And of course, in the 60s and 70s, it was the whole counterculture of the 60s movement, the anti-war movement, LGBT movement, the women's movement were all getting started. And again, did not want to be touched by the LAPD. So we've always had this relationship where we didn't want to be associated with the greater culture of Los Angeles and always stood out as flamboyant, counterculture, outrageous, extreme, riding on the margins. And you can sort of sense it and, you know, continuing to evolve and, and push the envelope, especially against Donald Trump and Trumpism. It's just exciting to know that we have been resistors in this part of LA for 100 years plus.
8: Also historic, as you just pointed out, but, you know, we have the Sunset Strip and right. Route 66.
3: The Sunset Strip has got its own story. I mean, the Sunset Strip is a huge economic engine for West Hollywood. But if you look at the people who've been part of the Strip, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, the Rat Pack, right? They really pushed the envelope to make sure Ella Fitzgerald and Sammy Davis Jr. could break through the racial barriers and perform in their clubs. Back then, blacks and whites were not allowed to perform in each other's clubs. And in fact, Chief Parker used to arrest white women if they were seen entering black clubs, right? So we went from the complete segregation of the races to the performers and entertainers on the Sunset Strip demanding integration. Marilyn Monroe told the owner of the Macombo, I will sit at the front table if you let Ella Fitzgerald come here and sing. And so she went out of her way to make sure that happened. Jimmy Dean and Sal Mineo continuing to push the envelope, you know, with call themselves the Night Watch on the Sunset Strip. Jim Morrison in the doors, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, it just goes on and on and on of all the people who've called West Hollywood home, always feeling like they were the fringe on the outside, but in many ways, the creative culture, the creators of what would become later mainstream culture, but always pushing the envelope. And I just think that's great for a little 1.9 square mile location to have that much vibrant energy all the time.
8: My memories of Sunset Strip as a teenager was going to Dino's Lodge. Ah, I did the
3: Tiffany Theater, the Rocky Horror Picture Show.
8: Right, which was a life-changing experience for you. It was. Tell us
3: about that. Well, I mean, back then I was just a club kid. I was a teenager. I had my fake ID. You know, I was going to the Rainbow. (laughs) All the good things. Yeah, and the Roxy and the (laughs) Whiskey-A-Go-Go, and I was quote-unquote straight. And some of my high school friends said, hey, we're going to go see this new show that Lou's putting on, Lou being Lou Adler, who was, you know, the Roxy. And Lou Adler had created the Rocky Horror Picture Show out of the theatrical production of the Rocky Horror Show. And it premiered at the Tiffany Theater, where it ran at midnight for decades, the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And seeing that picture for the first time, I had the idea that, wait a minute, there's gay people? Wait a minute, there's same-sex sexual relations? Before that hadn't even crossed my mind. So in many ways, my coming out was prompted by seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975.
8: Little did yeah. you know, buying that theater ticket, your entire life was Yeah, that someday
3: I'd be the mayor of the city <laughs> where oh that theater loca- was located.
8: This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to the mayor of West Hollywood, John Duran. You're an Angelino, I, I know, yeah, yeah, grew up in Santa Fe Springs, yep. but you were born in Lincoln Heights.
3: That's right. Born in Lincoln Heights, Latino family, fourth generation, Mexican-American family. My family has strong ties to the Southwest, always in New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. People say, when did your family come across the border? I'm like, no, your border came across my family Hello. in 1840. We were always here in the Southwest of the United States, always been here. And so growing up Catholic, Latino family, those Catholic, cultural, conservative values and then having to be confronted with the fact that I was gay and trying to figure out how to navigate that. But I think the strongest part of Latino culture is the family. The family is the center, it's the core. You can have a family member in prison. You can have a family member who's an alcoholic or a drug addict. You can have a family member who's going through a bitter divorce. It doesn't matter. Family always sticks together through thick and thin. So I think that's really been helpful for me and for my family. You know, my mom and dad, it was kind of a shock to them when I came out of the closet in the 70s became very active with P Flag here in Los Angeles. And my mother, who's also an elected official, she was a school board member, she became a leading voice in PFLAG for Latina mothers across East LA. Kids were coming out to their Latino parents, they said, go see Gloria Duran, her son's been out forever. Go see Gloria Duran. And these Latino parents would show up and oh my God, I mean, didn't you feel horrible when John told you he was gay? And she'd say, no, I felt horrible when my son Tony told me he was a Republican. That's what I felt <laughs> horrible about. And yeah, she would always joke with them that way. And out of that, they'd start the conversation about their LGBT kids.
8: She was a great inspiration for you in terms of your life of service. Yeah.
3: I remember when I was a kid uh, in the 60s, my mom was very involved with the United Farm Workers. And I used to see her and the other Latinas stuffing envelopes for about Cesar Chavez and the great boycott. And so as kids, we pulled up chairs and we were taught how to dress envelopes and put stamps on and stuff flyers. Back then, there was no social media. There was no Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. If you wanted to communicate with people, you either had to get on the phone or you'd put flyers in the mail. So early on, mom would put all four kids to work, you know, stuffing envelopes and flyers and explaining that we were trying to make a difference for these farm workers. And so I think my early activism was inspired by watching my mom as a role model, first as an activist, and then as she became an elected official.
8: Now, being in city government, goodness knows, is a full-time job. So you really are Superman in terms of all that you do because you are uh, an attorney. I mean, tell me about the work you do there because I know so much of it has to do with LGBTQ issues, HIV, AIDS.
3: You know, the expression, man plans, God laughs. That's true for me. You know, I thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. And as soon as I got out of law school and I passed the bar, AIDS hit So suddenly I'm looking all around and my friends are sick and they're dying and we have all sorts of legal issues going on. Employment discrimination, housing discrimination, public accommodations discrimination. They need wills, they need bankruptcies, they're being evicted for having HIV. There was this whole panoply of legal issues that were happening because we had never experienced an epidemic. And so there were all the health care issues that were going on, but simultaneously a host of legal issues going on. So I formed a small law firm with three other young gay men, the four of us, and We started by becoming lawyers for ACT UP. Los Angeles, here in Southern California, we defended the protesters in the streets. Then we were the lawyers for the first needle exchange here in Southern California. Then the lawyers for what would become medical marijuana long before there were propositions and initiatives. You know, we were getting marijuana to people out of medical necessity to help keep their medications down and keep the nausea down and increase their appetites. And so it was ironic, but, you know, I went to law school to become a corporate lawyer and said I ended up defending lawbreakers every which way, you know, whether it was act-up protesters or people with clean needles or people who were using medicinal marijuana marijuana. And that just flowed over into LGBT rights and then to what I do today, which is primarily criminal defense work.
8: I hear you say that. And of course, all those years come back to me. You know, I moved to West Hollywood in 82 after 20 years in New York. And I think of our young people today who, thank God, have no clue what that was like.
3: They've never seen Kaposi's sarcoma, lesions on people's faces. If they saw one, you watch how quickly they practice safe sex. They've never seen CMV retinitis or toxoplasmosis. These are all medical terms I shouldn't know, right? I'm a lawyer. But I had to learn these medical terms in the 80s. We all did because we were confronted with these strange diseases that were striking our very young and beautiful men all across West Hollywood. I don't think that LGBT people would be enjoying wedding cakes today had it not been for the sacrifices that a lot of us made in the 80s on HIV and AIDS. We got a chance to humanize ourselves in a very painful and a very glaring and Obvious way. And it's really remarkable when you think about it culturally what happened. Because what happened, at least here in Southern California, a lot of suburban middle class kids, and we were kids, you know, never been radicalized before, never thought it'd be about challenging the government, challenging the police, getting in the streets and protesting. We were just quote unquote normal everyday suburban kids that had an epidemic thrust on us. And when the government didn't respond for about six years, anger and angst and frustration began to build, and it radicalized what were otherwise middle-class suburban kids into becoming activists that created AIDS Healthcare Foundation, AIDS Project Los Angeles, the LGBT Center quadrupling its budget. All these community organizations, Equality California, the Life AIDS Lobby got birthed out of such horror and destruction. So like the great phoenix rising out of this horrible, devastating scene that hopefully we never have to experience again, looking at what came out of it, we should really be proud of as a community of what we built out of complete despair, out of complete despondency, we built institutions and organizations and a city and a community that's going to move forward into the future.
8: And that's how our community learned organizing and getting together. You're right, because they had to. And I say they because I should have been more involved. I think I was just catatonic. It was such a horror. Do you find that there is a division between the LGBT community and the Latino LGBT community? There's a huge... Schism there.
3: It has been, and I've had to play both sides of that because I wear both hats, yes. right? So I've had to tell people in West Hollywood that I'm Latino. I've had to come out of my Latino closet. Duran is not like Guerrero or Hernandez or Fernandez or Gonzalez, right? Those surnames you understand to be Latino-Mexican. Duran is like Duran-Duran, you know, <laughs> the rock band, or, you know. And I have to tell people, no, think Roberto Duran, the boxer in Mexico.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, so, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. So,
3: so when I first got elected to office in 2001, I brought a mariachi band and had an all-female mariachi band perform. They wanted to send a signal to all of West Hollywood, I am the first person of color on this council. I am Mexican-American, you know, and I'm your first Latino on this council. In fact, the only one. I wanted to make sure that I doubled down on that to make sure that people understood it. But I've also had to do the same thing in my Latino community because of the machismo, the culture of malehood and what that's supposed to represent, and that effeminacy or feminism is a threat to that cultural mori of machismo. You know, I've had, to work on that side of the equation too, so I think my experience has been it's a little of both sides, being oh, uncomfortable sure. with the other. But you know, LGBT Latinos and Latinas and Latinx, this is where we get to bridge those two communities together.
8: Oh my God, I have admired you from afar for so many years, and to sit here and talk to you, I'm absolutely thrilled. And oh, I thank you, I thank you so much me. for being yeah, here. Of course, yeah. And I hope you come back
3: anytime. All anytime. right,
8: all right. Thank you.
3: All right, thank you, Dan.
8: This is Dan Guerrero with the Gay Tina Report, and I've been talking with the Mayor of West Hollywood, John. Dur- And a few gracias to my dad, Lalo Guerrero, who wrote and sings our opening theme, Los Chucos Suaves. My producer, Steve Pride, thank you so much. The Gaytino Report is recorded at KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud.
2: Well, Michael Taylor Gray, we still have a couple minutes.
1: That's right, Chloe Corcoran. Enough time for a last word.
4: When we gave the last word to Julia Sugarbaker from the 1980s sitcom Designing Women,
3: we realized she wasn't a real person. But in this election cycle, who is?
7: I was thinking that you seem to have forgotten the phrase separation of church and state. The one thing I did forget was just how divisive and dishonest and distasteful someone like you can be. I've sat here today and listened to you pander to these people, but you don't actually care about them, or you wouldn't be sitting here reinforcing their ignorance and prejudices. I have had it up To hear with you and your phony issues and your Yankee doodle yakking. If you like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance every day, then I think you should do it. In the car, in the shower, wherever the mood strikes you. But don't try to tell me when or where I have to say or do or salute anything because I am an American too. And that is what being an American is all about. And another thing, I am sick and tired of being made to feel that if I am not a member of a little family with 25 four children who goes just to Jerry Falwell's church and puts their hands over their hearts every morning that I am unreligious, unpatriotic, and un-American because I have news for you. All liberals are not kooks any more than all conservatives are fascists. And the last time I checked, God was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. And just for your information, yes, I am a liberal, but I am also a Christian. And I get down on my knees and pray every day on my own turf, on my own time. And one of the things that I pray for is that people with power will get good sense. And people with good sense will get power. And that the rest of us will be blessed with the patience and the strength to survive the people like you in the meantime.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, and everybody who identifies in between, as we reach the end of tonight's journey, please make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full upright position, your seat belt is securely fastened, and all carry-on baggage is stowed underneath the seat in front of you or placed in a progressive stance in the overhead bins. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our coordinating producer and director of distribution, and most importantly, Sparkle, Vashvodi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs, and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. We would love to have you. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to KPFK.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos and IMRU radio
1: podcast on YouTube. Good,
2: Good night. night.